Well, here we are again, another episode of Life in the Peloton. I'm pleased to have my co-host on here, Lionel Burney from the Cycling Podcast. Welcome, Lionel, to another episode. Hi, Mitch. How are you doing? I'm doing well, actually. I've um, been a good dad at the moment. I've had plenty of time at home, um, and that is probably one of the biggest positive sides at the moment to the controversy of what's going on around the world and also inside the small cycling bubble, um, the coronavirus, which has sort of turned everything up on its head and especially in the cycling world, if anyone doesn't know about it, you know, a lot of the um, Italian races, well, all of the Italian races for the next month have been cancelled and I was due to go down to Strada Bianchi on the weekend and instead I was uh, at home having a weekend with, with the family, which was nice on the other side. Well, tell me what actually happened because your team, EF Pro Cycling, were um, really proactive on on this issue. Jonathan Vorters, the, the team boss, had been on on Twitter, kind of talking about you know how you know the show must go on, and 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 I got the sense that that he kind of uh, got educated a little bit on the situation with the, with this virus, and then within probably forty eight hours, the team had pulled out of the Italian races and and was kind of leading the way, uh, certainly wasn't the only team to pull out of the Italian races and also Paris-Nice and then of course the Strada Bianca, Tirreno, Adriatico, Milan, San Remo all cancelled hopefully will be rescheduled later in the year but as a rider all set to go your bag presumably packed ready to catch a flight how did things play out for you? I think look, I'm not exactly sure how the final decision came with the team but I guess it was just a hell of a lot more to lose than to gain by going down there with a the whole team, everyone flying from different parts of Europe across into Italy and um, with everything that was going on there, not knowing exactly what was going on. I think it was the right decision to make that call opposed to getting there and then finding out, oh, we should have made this call before we got here. And I, I really love that the team was on the front foot there and made that decision because it sort of took it out of my hands and the decision was made. I actually had just finished my last sort of push for Strada Bianchi and was ready to rock and roll, had a couple of cruisy days and then into the race. But unfortunately, once that call had been made, I was like, well, it looks like I've got a big block of training again on the weekend. It's time to push on. So that was difficult motivation-wise um, to suddenly then go out and kill yourself in training when you're expecting to be riding up the dirt roads in Italy and something exciting, which I was really looking forward to. But on another side of things, you know, I'm I'm safe at home and like I said, I got to have another weekend with the family. So I definitely wasn't complaining on that side of things. So tell me about this episode of Life in the Peloton. This is you and your old mate Luke Durbridge back together again. Yeah, we're back together. This is a classics review. I love having a chat with Luke and we have a few cheeky Belgian beers and discuss the opening weekend in Belgium. And for anyone who doesn't know, this is the first weekend of the classics. The Belgium classics that begin with Umlop Het Newsblad and then the following day, Kerner Brussels Kern. They're so stressful. Everyone's ready to go. Everyone's ready to show what they've done over the winter. This year, I wasn't up there. So it was awesome sitting on the other side of the table talking to Durbo about it and just going, mate, was it just as stressful as it always is? And just waiting to hear those answers because the weather was horrible. The racing looked tough. And I was just loving talking to him from an outside point of view. Last year, we talked about it because we were both in the race. This year, I wasn't there. So it was even more interesting for me to interview him about that. And following that, we got some great listener questions sent in and some funny moments there. 
Durbo and I, after our second beer, were starting to get a little bit more loose and the questions were really flowing well. So I hope everyone enjoys everything, all the answers out there and our review of the classics because listening back myself, I certainly enjoyed listening to it. Shoot, uh, shoot à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's the voice of Seb PK, radio tour at the Tour de France, of course, interrupting this episode to remind me to tell you that Life in the Peloton is this week sponsored by Velo Birmingham and Midlands, who organise a closed road sportive, and this year will also be hosting the prestigious HSBC UK Road Race Championships. So from the 18th to the 20th of June, the national championships will be taking place in the Midlands with the best British riders all battling for the gold medals and the national champions jerseys white with the red and blue bands in the time trials and the road races. And the following day, that's Sunday the 21st of June, up to 15,000 riders will ride on closed roads over 45 miles or 100 miles. Velo, Birmingham and Midlands is billed as Britain's second biggest closed road cycling event. And with the national championships tagged on this year, it's an even more attractive proposition. In fact, the sign-on and start area of the national championship road races is adjacent to the Velo, Birmingham and Midlands rider registration point, which means that people, when they go to sign on for the Sunday Sportive, they can see the riders from the national championships, the, the professional riders in the flesh, and also watch the road races on the big screens in the event village. The ride itself on the Sunday, uh, either 45 or 100 miles, as I said, starts and finishes in the heart of Birmingham city centre. And there's even a bit of pavé, Lionel, the cobbled roads of Pepper Lane, just alongside Coventry Cathedral, somewhere our colleague Daniel Freeb will no doubt know very well. Well, Daniel will know those roads like the back of his hand, of course. Yes, indeed. And you'll own the roads and the ride through the stunning countryside, panoramic view, picturesque villages and lots of uh, lovely climbs along the way and as I said you'll be riding with around 15,000 other cyclists that sounds like a peloton that everyone will want to be a part of and because you listen to this podcast you can get an exclusive £10 discount on the entry fee you may have to be quick though so head to velobirmingham.com and enter the promo code cyclingpodcast that's all one word cyclingpodcast and you can get 10 pounds off your entry and be there on the start line for what promises to be a fantastic weekend of racing watch the pros battle for the national titles one day and then ride with a peloton of riders on closed roads the following day Well, here we are, Luke. This is our annual classics catch-up. Welcome back to Life in the Peloton, the first time you're here this year. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me back on. Good to be back on. And it wouldn't be a Life in the Peloton recording without a Belgian beer in hand, so what have you got for us tonight? Uh, Tonight I've got the St. Bernardus. Apparently it tastes the same as West Fleeteren. And it's very, um, it's very appropriate seeing as we're talking about the opening weekend tonight, the opening weekend of the classics that is, because we explained this last year. So if you haven't heard this episode, it's really interesting. It's a little bit outdated because we're talking about last year's classics, but go back and listen to 12 months ago, Luke and I talking classics and you'll get the idea of what we're talking about. But what we do is the first weekend in Belgium where the first races of the Cobblestone Classics happen, Umlupahet Newsblad 
and Kern of Brussels Kern. It's the opening weekend of the classics and we just discuss what's going on, being back on the stones and being back in the cold, stressful racing. So that's what we're doing this year and we're having a Belgian beer. I'm having a Chimay Blue, which that's is... That's your favourite, no? It's up there. My favourite is Orval. Orval. It was Chimay for a while there, I think, wasn't it? No, it's just a good standard. Yeah. 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 All right, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about Belgium because as I've described in the last few podcasts, or if you haven't heard already, I'm not doing a whole lot of Belgium classics this year. Changed my program a little bit, so I've missed opening weekend. And that's what I want to ask you, actually, for my own insight. What was it like? What was it like being back up in Belgium, first of all? <laughs> back up in Belgi? Well, I think there's two sides of it. Maybe you dodged a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Missing opening weekend. Um, I think you've done opening weekend enough times to understand what opening weekend is. It's And also, the it's generally one of the worst weather conditions for a classic because it's the earliest you know it's in february still and we got a classic opening weekend you know we did recon two days before in actual snow one degree in snow and the races uh that we did umlum het newsblad and kern of russell kern were done in you know very dismal conditions you know sort of that uh, weather app we get before the race says eight degrees but feels like two you know, with what is that feels like? I don't know. Like, yeah. what's that feel? What do you Did mean? it like, feel like two? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was bloody freezing. <laughs> so, um, well, in, what, yeah. what did you wear? <laughs> As you know, that is the biggest talked about thing in the bus before. Mm. It's actually quite comical, really. You know, I don't know how many times I've been up in Belgium, but I'm sitting there going. Now, I have four selections of undershirts. Um, I have three different vests. I have three different rain jackets. I have three different toe covers, all these different things, and you're trying to work out what you need to wear. And then someone comes out of the blue and just wears Nixon jersey. Like, we have this Italian guy in our team, Eduardo Fini, and he doesn't feel the cold. And he comes, he's got just like a light vest, arm warmers, and Nixon jersey. I'm looking at him like, are you putting a jacket on? He's like, no, 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 that's all I'm wearing. I'm like, what? What do you mean? That's what you're wearing. Like it's freezing outside. He's like, oh, it's not that cold. And I'm like, oh no. And then the it stress blows starts. everything out. You're like, oh god. <laughs> I've got you know a buff on up around my face. And so, so what did you wear? Run what, us through yeah. from the bottom to top, well, starting with the shoes. Yes, shoes. I I don't generally like to wear booties, so I wore toe covers. Amazing creations, toe covers. If you can keep your toes warm, everything else feels. Winter socks. Winter socks. You know, merino wool winter socks. Then I went knee warmers. The only reason I went knee warmers is because they're easy to get off while you're racing. Leg warmers is a bit more difficult. They're quite long knee warmers though. Yeah, they? long yeah. knee warmers. I actually cut off leg warmers. Then I went, we have a woolen, no, not a woolen, but like a thermal Nicks mm. bib shorts. A uh, They call it a ceramic undershirt, which has got some sort of fibre in it that's meant to be warm. Is it a vest undershirt or is it a short sleeve or long sleeve undershirt? Uh, short sleeve. Hmm. Yep. Short sleeve undershirt. Uh, and then set of thermal arm warmers. Thermal arm warmers? Yeah. They're like a bit more robust, a bit more, even a little bit waterproof. Oh, yeah. There's some really great kit out there these days. <laughs> um, and then I went no jersey because there was no actual point wearing a jersey because I was never going to wear it. So I pinned my numbers to a short sleeve thermal jersey really yeah and then i ran a rain jacket in my back pocket so at any moment i can put my rain jacket was it raining on the start line it wasn't raining on the start line but sort of 5k in wore the wore the rain jacket but the hard thing is with those sorry yeah sorry last thing did you wear anything under your helmet no i hate it 
Mm. headband or the cap or you can wear a cap if it's really raining but anything else just makes me feel Mm. a bit claustrophobic can't wear a headband or anything i'd prefer just to and you had a buff on no no buff also the same thing don't Mm. like it around my neck you know yes it looks cool i think it looks great buff looks great like you look like a sweet dude when you wear a buff pretty much but uh they're the uncomfortable race not long finger gloves either no short finger short fingers So, okay, well then run me through, you've touched on the weather a little bit. It was pretty icicle. It was sort of almost sleet, was it? Yeah, it was really windy. So any weather that came in didn't last very long. It was sort of like 40 to 50k an hour winds. So sort of like we'd get sort of like flashes of rain, cold, and then it would blow over and then it would come (laughs) back again. You get a little bit of hope. Oh man, that's actually not so bad. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's apocalyptic. And then you look up the road and it's sunny again. So it wasn't as bad probably as what Huey had predicted. Uh, but Saturday, yeah, like for me personally, made a, made a massive mistake in terms of I got really cold. So I've gone back and got a jacket and uh, to put a jacket on. And then it's uh, that's uh, the risk actually. If you go back to the cars in these races, you, you race and you ends. Oh, so what happened to that rain jacket from the start? <sighs> I got rid of it because it got warm. So you threw it away? No, no, no. I, I went back to the car and gave it to the car. Um, we don't get that many rain jackets to throw them away. But, but why? You were thinking it was going to go warm to the end of the day. Yeah, because it got really warm and it got, you know, it got to that point where you're thinking, I'm, I'm like sweating here. And How many K in? Maybe 20K. It was like really, really warm. You didn't like, think about just pocketing it for later in the day? Oh, look, I made a mistake, you know. Let's, <laughs> just, uh, let's just break this apart. Let's debrief it. <laughs> All right, so debrief... I had this jacket on, I took it off, I gave it back to the car, and then I, I kept racing. And then it got to a point where it was headwind, it was cold, and it was 140 or 50k to go. The brake's gone. So you're thinking, okay, this is a moment where amateur decision for me, I've raced up in Belgium long enough, you never know when the race is going to kick off. But I've made a decision to go back and get a rain jacket. I've waited for the car to come up. We are car 22, that's also difficult. And the car has come up and given me the jacket, but I knew there was going to be some crosswinds and I made a bad decision. <laughs> I stopped and put the rain jacket oh, on. you stopped? Because it was windy. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. And then I got going again. And uh, when I looked up, you know, you know that moment of horror when you look up and you see one team deciding to, and you're actually in car two, you're not even back in the peloton. That was a long <laughs> 35k of chasing to make the race get back to the back to the race. So, yeah, I learnt my lesson. It's funny, hey, every time you go up, and that's what opening weekend is, isn't it? It's like you go up there and you're learning about it's all new again because it's like no other race. You know, mm-hmm. the the weather conditions, what you wear in the race, how you race. You know, there's some sort of structure about most races, but when you get up there and opening weekend, there is no structure. You really have to be open to any possibility of how the race goes. It could kick off off the off the um, neutral car. Mm. You've seen that before. As they drop the flag, it splits into four groups, and that's the end of the day. Again, Wavelgum, many a times. Yeah, again, yeah, Wavelgum. So you really just have to, I think the mentality, you know, you've been racing in the sun in Spain, you've been racing in the sun and it and under, and break goes it's all pretty good and then all of a sudden you race in the final and that's it but up there it's just like all of a sudden like well let's talk about that the stress and that's something that i miss and that's something that always blows me away with opening weekend 
you go there with this individual motivation like, yeah, this year's my year. Tick all I'm the gonna, boxes. I'm going to go up there. I've ticked the boxes. I'm, but not only that, I'm one, I'm fit. That's all done. But the, th- the second thing is, no, no, I'm ready this year. And when, you know, shit hits a fan, I'm going to be that guy who's ready to nut it out. And I'm going to race for that corner and I'm going to be the last guy to break. But every single guy is thinking that. <laughs> yes. Like yeah. every single guy. It's not like two five, six, five, six yeah. classics down the road where yeah. you're like 40, 50 guys are like, you know what? Maybe this year I'm, I'll be different. Yeah, I'm, yeah. well, they're like 60, 70 guys are like, I'm over it. Yep. You know, you yeah, have yeah. the wheel, whatever. Yep. But like these guys, the first weekend, and it's stress. What was that like? Was it still there this year? Yeah, it's, I think it's a, <laughs> Yes, it was. Yes. 100%, yes. So in the neutral, it's quite a comical neutral. As you know, you, you leave Ghent and there's that one corner in the neutral that goes under the bridge. And again, you sort of start up, start left and you come up, you rise over this footbridge and you drop down and you take this right underneath the bridge. And oh, you, yeah, you, yeah, the freeway, yeah, yeah. You're still on the, the neutral car. It's still neutral. Mm. Like this is the big thing. You're still neutral. And there is guys sprinting over the top of the freeway bridge to make sure they're first into that corner to make them not screwed up for the next three corners and like everyone looks at each other and go right we're up it's on you know and uh and then as soon as the car goes it's just it's hell and it's war and 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 there's so many close calls and the biggest thing is that i always find with um opening weekend is that you really need to Try and stay calm in, 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 in it. And I think the guys that do perform on opening weekend have a, an ability to be able to stay calm in those moments and, like, just sort of be able to... Because it, it is it is, it is a stressful situation and there is no other race like it. Like, I mean, the, the amount of stories that you could share from opening weekend of close calls that you saw or you were a part of are just endless. But now does it make you... Are you walking away from that Sunday night flying from Brussels back to Barcelona... Were you on that flight going, yeah, so why do I love these things again? No, not really. I think the first day, sure, I made a mistake with the rain jacket, but the second day there is that that love for those races. And, and once you get in the flow of those races, you sort of – it's a bit like a, you're going on a – on a ride on a, at an adventure park you know you sort of get addicted to that roller coaster mm. and i think on sunday or even after saturday on sunday i got a bit of addicted to be there's a bit of a process and a, and a system to the the risk and i i love them like i i i still when i got on the plane sunday night i was like yeah i can't wait to get back up here for the next round well tell me about saturday night then what were you feeling like i know that the rain jacket the disappointment of the day yes the opening race. Yeah. So what was your thought process individually? Okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to save this for myself? Like Saturday, there was no excuse to make it. Like it's a silly decision. I've been pro for long enough. There was no excuse to do that. So, but Sunday night, I literally just wrote it off. Saturday you, night. Saturday yeah. night. You made a make, you make a bad mistake and then, you know, you move on. And the, then Sunday, you went in the mentality of rather than overanalyzing or the anxiety of opening weekend or whatever, just, you know how to ride classics. Just race the race, you know. Mm. What what I like to do is break it down into small steps. So throughout the race, there is these crucial sections that you need to be in the front. And that starts from about 30K in. Okay, the first section is the hollow egg, which is a cold section, maybe 2K long. Be top 10 or top 20 position into the hollow egg. Cut to berg before that, maybe. Yep, tick that box. Once you ticked it, then you move on to the next berg. Okay, maybe it's a... Uh, 
Pattersburg, or not, not Pattersburg, we did um, Pattersburg maybe, top 10 or top 20 into there. Then relax through this period because mm. it's a long road. Then you really got to break it down all the way to the finish. And I think that's what was like what I did Sunday is that how I normally race them is that, okay, doom, pick that box, ticked it, move on. Pick that box, tick that, move on. And opposed to just going, you know what? I want to finish top ten today. Exactly. And thinking about that sprint and thinking about that corner at three hundred meters to go. When the race is over for hundred k to yeah. go, so yeah, that was mm. pretty much my mentality, which I knew better, and I was a bit upset about it. But that's that's the way it is, you know. Well, let's speak about someone who actually seemed to had a good winter and get things right. Jasper Sturven, who's come out of the opening weekend, I guess, on top of the world, and to far to rewind back. 12 months ago, I remember we were asking who was going well, who wasn't. And a guy that I sort of thought and expected to go really well in the opening weekend was him. And it just didn't look like he was on fire. It sort of rolled on for the whole classic season. He mm. wasn't creeping, but he just wasn't doing what I thought. Mm. And this year he's done even more than what I thought he could do. Winning Umlopet Newsbad and then the next day um, actually finishing fifth. So, like, to back it up, two epic races and two quite different races mm. what were your thoughts on him well I mean he had an amazing weekend uh, I think Trek as a whole had a great weekend what I did notice from Trek is that they they employed I, I did say this during the race actually to Ryan Mullen who was riding for Trek that day was saying that they were riding really really well and what, what were they riding as a team as a they? team and but not just as a team they were doing a sort of a similar format to what quick step normally do is that they sort of pick two or three riders to just ride the front at all times during the race regardless how hard the, the race is your leaders are always never further back than fifth sixth or seventh mm. wheel so what they were doing was they would use sure use three guys and their race is over i'm, I'm sure they were using Ryan Mullen, I'm not sure who they were also using, but they were riding the front, even into a headwind section on a big road. And they would just be riding, riding, turning it over. And regardless how slow they- Taking control. Taking control, which was what Quickstep have done in the past. With Ilio Kesa, De Klerk, these these riders, they would ride the front, take control. What were Quickstep doing then? They were doing it as well. Taking but, second fiddle. Yeah, but also they have probably about five leaders. Mm. <laughs> it's very difficult in that team when you think about how many guys, who's actually going to ride the front if you've got Bob Jungles, Stebar, Askreen, um, Eves Lampart, and the list just goes on. Jakobsen, yeah. you know, just who's actually going to ride. That's the difficult thing about Quickstep. They've got so many leaders. So what Trek were doing, which saves Sturvin a lot of energy, is committing they're not really chasing, but they're establishing... And installing the confidence in him. Exactly. Hey, we're here to win. Yeah. And I think it's very difficult for a Belgian young rider like Sturman, who had such a great success early on. And I mean, he's a, he's a class bike rider, but that pressure builds and builds and builds and builds. If you continually build that team around him, you know, you're bound to have a bad year here and there. So it's obviously he's worked out a way to... Um, to get his form back to what he can do, and it was it was bloody impressive, and it was it was great to see, you know, mm. him him back and winning all. Well, who else did you think was moving well? Because look, I was watching it back here in uh, sunny Spain on television. It's always easy to critique it from the TV, and one person I saw a lot on the camera was Heinrich Hausler, and we know him personally from racing in the worlds together with him, and just to see him back in form, Heino, if you're listening, g'day mate, g'day Heino. Um, 
you know, good to see him back in form. And he also, I saw he threw up an Instagram saying, you know, seeing the legs of 2009 again. And that was some pretty special years. And he was, for lack of a better word, taking the piss up front. Um, I would have liked to see him go on and do something a bit more with it. But he's looking like he's back in good form. Um, who else did you see sort of floating around that didn't necessarily stand on the podium? But you saw, you know what? That guy just rode up the Quaramont from back to front. Mm. No one would have seen that, but he's going well. Who else did you think? Well, I think, I mean, I like the combination with, uh, it's a bit of a shame that obviously Trentin had to to leave our team to... to Matteo Trentin. Matteo Trentin, yeah. yeah. But I, I, I did think that uh, Trentin-Greg Van Avermaet combination actually worked quite well. Mm. It's always difficult when you have two sort of classic leaders and how they're going to merge together. Uh, but it looked like Trentin had super legs for... Het Nusblad, he was unlucky not to get back to that group on the on the Mur, um, ended up running fourth, which is a great result. And then Greg, because what in case anyone didn't see what happened there, there was a group that got away, that was away earlier, and he tried to go across solo, didn't he? Yes, yeah, he tried to go across after the Mur, well, which was he, an amazingly strong move. Wasn't yeah, it? and he said he did his best time trial power forever when he was yeah. by himself for that uh, by himself for that long period. And I think that's going to be quite a good. You know, I think the biggest thing people can compare themselves with is how they're going to rival Quickstep. Mm. And that's the, always what you talk about in the classics because Quickstep have such a dominance. Like I explained before, they have five leaders. So with uh, teams like Trek going, no, we're going to ride like this. And CCC have, we're gonna, we've got two leaders. We've got Greg and we've got mm. Trentin. And we've got EF has also a great classic squad as well. It's just trying to work out your, your combinations to try and combat such a strong team like well I think like like you said it can actually work in an advantage because sometimes when you've just got the sole leader yes the whole team's behind them but if that sole leader is isolated on their own they feel like they've got to do everything on their own and often you get into the final with one or two leaders who Mm. are good enough to make the final you've got options to play yeah for sure and like that's something we've spoken about in the years before and it looks like with Trentin now and Greg Greg can actually use that and Matteo can also use Greg being there too. And it's just finding that if they can be worked together well. Yeah, for sure. Um, was there anyone you didn't think was going particularly well that you expected to be up there? Um, uh, what would I think? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's been a big loss for Lotto to lose Tish mm. to go to um, somewhere. I didn't. I actually was riding behind someone. I thought that looks like Tish, but I actually forgot he'd gone to somewhere. So I think that's been a, a bit of a loss. Mm. Uh, I didn't see didn't see Lotto I guess up there as much as maybe they have been in the past when they've got such a, a threat. With you know, got Tim Wellens and also um, John Degenkop now. They've also got Gilbert back true. on there. So I guess that team is probably going to come away from that weekend and then be like. We're still a force to be reckoned with, and let's see what happens with them in the next little period. And I think it's also a big thing not to overanalyze opening weekend because mm. well, I don't know, I don't know if it's correct stat or not, but they said not too many people have won Het Volk or Het Newsblad and then gone and won Flanders because they're so far away. Yeah. So it's 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 one of those things that it's like okay, that's opening weekend. It was a good test for everyone. A lot of people like even for us in Mitchell and Scott, we had we a lot of young, a lot of young guys up there. And um, some really passionate guys for the classic sort of. I, I saw a lot of uh, kind of you and me when we first used to go up there, and I mean 
you you being there a lot more earlier than me but you teaching me the the ropes of the classics and a lot of those guys are coming to me for advice and we've got a really good young squad up there but i think opening weekend was one of those scarring but necessary experiences for a lot of teams to have because in a month's time we go up there and we do the real the real battle tell us about one piece of advice you gave someone one uh, of the young guys yes i uh it's a bit of a bit of a funny story i was speaking to rob stannard uh, he's a young uh, australian kid and um he loves the classics and he, he has a big future up there i feel he was in the final at Kerner. Yeah, he was 14th. Hmm. It was pretty pretty good. Just you run. and him in the final, wasn't yep. it? Yep. 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 He was up there. And uh, before this was going into... Sorry, how old is he? Rob Stannard is, I think, 22, 23. Yes. Uh, we get to the the run into the Cote de Trier, which is the climb that you need to be in the front if you want to be in the front for the Quaramont, because what happens is you go into the Cote de Trier, you go to the top, everyone rides, blocks the road, it's a really small road, and at the top it's like an all-out sprint to make it into position for the small downhill, which you go downhill, left, left, you're onto the Quaramont. Mm. So pretty much if you're out of position on the Cote de Trier, you can pretty much say, kiss your chances of being in the front over the Quaramont. So Rob had done a really good effort to get into position on the coach trio and he was next to me and we get over the top and I start yelling at Rob we gotta go now we gotta go now now let's go and we start sprinting you know I start sprinting and, and Rob sort of was that on that bypass road there? yeah the bypass yeah. road and I've sort of Rob sort of starts sprinting and Rob's a much faster sprinter than me but Rob sort of just you know like semi going you know and I've just sort of I've come past him you're doing like an hour quicker. Just yeah. like, mate, oh, we're gonna go. Like we're gonna go now. What position yeah. were you guys in? We might have been thirty. Pretty, and you're like, we need to be top ten. We need to be a top ten. Like we need, really need to just keep going until we get there, you know. And uh, Rob didn't quite understand the urgency of what. Obviously, never done the run in to the Quaremont before. Didn't quite understand what was coming up. There was actually no moment. And um, the next time I got to speak to him after the finish was he said, ah. Oh, when you said go now, I didn't really know it was like all out, full gas, sprint. I just sort of like semi and like got out of seats. And like, yeah, of, I know. No, no, no. <laughs> I know. I saw you. And, he, and Rob got got tailed off on the Quaramont and had to chase for 30 or 40k <laughs> before he eventually came back to me. And then he sort of realised... You almost want to yeah. laugh at him at that point. <laughs> he wishes... G'day, mate. Yeah, hey. Welcome back. He's oh, man, that's been a hell of a ride to get back, you know. <laughs> But yeah. he, but you know he he, he, he that's a lesson that that I've sort of uh, that he learned and I, I don't think he'll do that again. So. But that's the thing you got to learn the hard way. Yes. So like now he knows. Maybe yeah. it would have been worse for him to sprint in position and stay there because he would have been like, yes. oh, I'm on. It's not too hard. <laughs> There's one little point I also want to touch on, which I think most people would have seen, or if you didn't see it, Gianni Moscon is a guy, an Italian rider from um, Ineos. And he's been a bit controversial over the last few years and it looks like he's got a bit of a short temper. But um, typically, back on the stress stuff, it was very stressful race and there's quite a lot of crashes just from there's no room on the road. And from what I could see, there was just one of those type crashes. Guys went off the side of the road, spilled off the road, and in an effort to find his bike, he was picking up other bikes and threw his bike at another rider. Once again, I only saw it on the television, so I had no idea of the situation. What was that situation like? Can you shed any light on that? Or is it even worth talking about this? I mean, not really. It's it's not acceptable at, at any moment, I don't feel. Like, we are all trying to go to the front. And there is 
generally in the classics there's no hierarchy with everyone's actually just trying to get to the front and it doesn't matter who you are if it's your bear it's a neo pro it's whatever and you see riders of even really high caliber taking huge risks to get to the front because it's the you you need to be there and everyone's just trying to do that and crashes happen because there's 180 guys trying to fit on a road no bigger than a bike path so when you see someone there's a crash and sure there might have been a guy taking a bit of a risk to move up and causes a crash but i mean you, you don't really know like it who actually caused it most of the time you would have no idea who actually caused it it's just not acceptable to pick up your bike and throw your bike at uh, at another rider and if you've seen like if we use a depana last year three days no it's only a one day race depana last year when you see a huge pile up of crashes you know there is a um michael hepburn a good friend of ours you know stopped put his bike took bikes off Zach Dempster, who was laying on the ground, to see if he was okay, mm. and we're all trying to we're all trying to do a job, and no one wants to see other people injured. Like, sure, I want to beat you into that corner, but I would hate to see that person injured. And I think that's one thing that we all need to realise that sure we are racing and it is war out there and it is quite stressful. But I'm I'm taking no enjoyment out of someone crashing into a side of a car or running into a, a pole or pushing them off the road. So, you know, there needs to be that level of uh, just humanity, really. I think, yeah. I think the point you said that we are racing. Yes. Racing, racing a bike. It's a game, exactly. more or less, you know. So not excusable. Mm. I have no time for things like that. Shoot, uh, shoot that out of peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, at the back of the pack, please. We'll take a short break from Mitch's conversation with Luke Durbridge to remind you that this episode is sponsored by Velo Birmingham and Midlands. And the, well, it's, it's a genius idea to bring the national championships together with an already established closed road sportive because it's the best of both worlds, isn't it, Rich? The national championships, of course, been won by a who's who of best British riders. In recent years the men's road race title has been won by Geraint Thomas, Bradley Wiggins, Ian Stannard, Mark Cavendish Adam Blythe. Adam Blythe friend of the podcast. The women's title by Nicole Cook, Emma Pooley, Lizzie Dignan, Laura Trott. Hannah Barnes Alice, Alice Barnes. Barnes. the reigning champion um, and it's a chance to see the established pros and the stars of the future all racing for the national championship jersey. Richard, did you ever ride the nationals back I in the did. day? I did, Lionel, but it was a different uh, proposition then. I mean, the national championship in, in their current format over over several days with the time trial on the Thursday and then the road races on the Saturday, it's really grown an awful lot. And you've now got TV coverage and you've got world tour professional riders. That was not that common back in the, in the 90s. The event itself, though, has become a, a real um, showpiece event and, and one that attracts lots and lots of spectators. And again, that's not something that really happened in the past. It's a real treat to watch, partly because you've got this great battle between the the domestic professionals who make up the bulk of the field and the world tour uh, professionals who come back, some of them riding on their own. And that's increasingly the case with British riders sprinkled as they are around world tour teams. It's no longer the case that all the British pros are riding for team, what was Team Sky is now Team Ineos. They'll have a quite a, 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 a strong um, squad. But if you remember last year, Ben Swift won. And there was 
I would say limited te- teamwork. It was clearly every man for himself. Ian Stannard was away for a bit, but when Swift caught him, he went straight past him. You know, there was no dragging him to the finish for a silver medal. Well, I think that's something that all of the national championship races have in common. It really is uh, man against man, woman against woman, because there isn't the team strength. So you really see racing at its purest. And I definitely think this idea of having uh, a festival of cycling over a weekend is the way to go. It's always more appealing as a rider, isn't it, to get to test yourself on on a course that the uh, top riders have tackled and uh, well it's going to be a fantastic weekend so if you would like to enter the Velo Birmingham and Midlands ride you can get a £10 discount on your ride entry going to velobirmingham.com and use the promo code cyclingpodcast all one word cyclingpodcast Great. All right. Well, let's get into some of these questions. So we've got a lot of writer, not writer, we've got a lot of listener questions sent in this week. Here they are, the mailbag questions. First off the ranks, we've got Andrew, who sent in a question. What classics are both of you doing this year? What are you and Durbo's goals at the classics this season? Do you want to... Start that? I'll start up yeah. because I'm pretty pretty short this year. Yep. Well, I'm going to consider it a classic. I'm doing Strata Bianchi for the first time. It's a classic. Yes, I agree. I'm pretty excited about it. I um, think you'll like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good race. It's going to be completely different and I'm happy to be excited about doing a new race. So after that, I'm dropping into Belgium and doing De Punna, the race we spoke about just now. Yes. Then I'm going away and I'm coming back for... Skelter Price, flat race. Are you racing in between? I am. I'm doing Sicily, through Sicily. And then, of course, I'm doing Roubaix. So just a little bit, but the best. You might be a bit of a Matt Heyman sort of set up. Just drop in for Roubaix. I could do. Could sort of be up there on that podium. Who knows? (laughs) What about you? Uh, For me, I do Milan San Remo. Another big classic. I haven't done Milan San Remo in a few years. Uh, and then I pretty much do all the classics, the Flemish classics, from E3, Prize, um, Ghent Wevergem, Toisdor Vlaanderen, Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix. No Skelter Price. No, we've never done Skelter Price. Nice. What are your goals? Goals I would love to be on the podium in one of the classics coming up. Yep. The monuments or any classic? Me. I'm I want to be in the front group racing in that uh, front front group racing for the win. And um, I think now over the years and experience and, and the legs that I potentially would like to have is uh, I would like to be on the podium in some of these, yeah. Nice. Carl sent in another question. Who is the most respected, feared classic rider in the peloton at the moment? For me, I would say consistently, you can't go past Greg. Van Avermaet. Yep, Van Avermaet. Just because he is always there and at any moment he is always trying to go for the win you know even greg runs second or fourth or fifth or third or it doesn't matter what race you go to greg is always in that final and doesn't always work out for him because he's very tagged but for me i have a lot of respect for greg in terms of because every time there's a race there's an opportunity and that's to see how he races well i think like I know he's probably not a feared rider, but maybe he is now. Our screen after the weekend, he is ridiculous. Like he is ridiculous. But you so know, strong. 
Is he as crafty as a well-renowned classics rider? I don't know, but it, at the moment, it doesn't seem like he needs to be. No. He's got the horsepower. You know, like Stebar, I think. Zenix Stebar, he's also... Last year was a really good year for, for Zenix Stebar when in terms of he'd been away from it for a while in terms of trying to get it right. And then last year, I felt he really just... He smashed it last year, and I think the Roubaix or the Flanders is that's, not too far away that's from That's what him. I like yeah. about him. He's, he's the double. Mm. He's not just a Flemish guy, and he's not just a Roubaix guy. He's He can be out there in both. Yeah. Luke J, when did you guys discover the classics? Before or after becoming pro? And did you ever think you were going to be a classics rider? I saw the classics in like a Bicycling Australia magazine and I always vividly remember seeing this picture of O'Grady on a white cream look with the red look paint and he had, no he's in Credit Agricole oh, and he might have been Aussie champ and he was going around a corner out of the seat might have been up the mur and I just looked at it and he was dirty and he had the low profile wheels in on the cobbles and I was like oh wow that That's looks cool. sick yeah and then I had no idea whether I could be a classics rider or was going to be one. But when I signed with Skill Shimano, my first team, we went and did a recon before opening weekend. Actually, it was pretty gnarly. It was freezing. Now I think about it, the time of year. And I remember hitting those, those um, cobblestones, the Quarimont. And I remember saying to the director of the Quarimont, it's my favourite climb. I quickly learned it wasn't my favourite climb. It's like the <laughs> hardest climb there is. So but I just loved everything about it. The challenge of getting up that thing and hitting the stones. And we rode low profile wheels back then with 28 spokes, you know, and everything about it was pretty cool. Um, and that goes back to what I said to you earlier in the pod is that, do you still love it? There's something weird about those races. They're so friggin' hard. Yet, when I talk about it now... You can hear it in your voice. <laughs> I'm almost disappointed I wasn't up there this weekend in the cold and the rain. So, yeah, that's my answer to that. I guess for me, when I turned pro, I was more of a time trial, so I would say. I did have this vivid memory of watching Stewie on this dodgy Russian feed on the internet at 2am in the morning when Stewie won Roubaix. Oh, yeah. Running through the house yelling, Stewie's won Roubaix. You know, my parents probably don't even know what Paris-Roubaix was. And I was saying, Stewie's won Paris-Roubaix, first Australian ever. Um, we always used to practice that salute that he did with one hand pointing to the sky and I'm grabbing his seat and pointing to the sky. It's pretty, pretty cool salute. And I guess there was a little bit of burning desire there. Um, I, was fort- I was fortunate enough that when I turned pro... My first classics, my first race in Europe was three days of Tapana with Stuart O'Grady in my team. Mm. And we went up uh, the Kemmelberg and I hit the bottom with Stewie and I just went for it as hard as I could, you know. Stewie's in retirement, like retiring, and he was sort of like in the sort of twilight of his career and he sort of kind of said, oh, mate, you went up there bloody good. And uh, <laughs> Was this after the race? Or? This after the race, you oh, yeah. know. I think I ended up running you know top 10 overall in gc you know and he's like you know it's bloody great you went up there pretty good and i was like oh yeah yeah. then after that i sort of you know i guess i didn't realize that maybe that was something i would be good at i never really sort of like thought about it so much and i guess it wasn't until i started really riding with you and and understanding the amount of commitment that went in 
to the classics and you know we used to go up there and rent a house in Belgium and your love and passion for the races I guess it was sort of I didn't realize it needed that amount of commitment to actually do something up there so I probably Mm. not wasted but I probably did two years or three years of just going up there and racing and getting my head kicked in and then going on to the next race and trying to do some time trials and then I sort of thought to myself well maybe I actually could do well in these races and then that's when I started to you know really lean on you for advice about going up there and doing the reconnaissance of the courses and and we started going up there in maybe 2015 2016 and from then on I've just been absolutely hooked so yeah I've always had a passion for classic but it probably wasn't like something that started out because I was just a time trial track rider I guess Mm. but then as I've gone up there and riding with you and Matt Heyman and Stuart O'Grady and like you know like now Heyman's my director like you couldn't get a much more passionate guy about the classics up there than Matt Heyman can you you know so yeah I guess now that's why I'm hooked Eric during the spring classics fans regularly see the Pelton race like madmen towards particular obstacles tackled during various races for the sake of position of all the classics cobbles or otherwise what particular approach to a climb or sector is the most absolute craziest Oh, this is a know. good one. What's yours? It's got to be the Quaramont. Yeah. You're coming down the... They call it the new Quaramont and the old Quaramont. So the new Quaramont is just a normal road that runs parallel to the, the cobblestone climb, the old Quaramont. And we come down there. Like, we do it in Flanders three times. Remember the year they put us on that... The little road. Yeah. yeah I crashed in the barbed yeah, wire, the barbed remember? wire, yeah. That was last year? Year before. Two years ago. Two years ago. And we come down this road, it's, it's probably like 5 or 6%, big freeway road, and we are flying. Like, I mean, 100k an hour, and there's guys just doing their race-ending peels before before we get to this right-hand turn, which is actually still probably 2k away from the climb. But as we've already spoken about, that corner is important before that corner, before that corner, before you can't move. So everything is backtracking, which makes this descent epic. I've almost, I've actually considered putting a 55 chain ring on just for a 2K sector in a 260K race. There must be eight wide train, 10 wide trains. <laughs> and you've got no gears. And my job's often been to position someone into the bottom of the Quaramont. A 55 actually is a bloody good idea. Yeah, just for that 2K sector. That's and it. that could potentially win someone the race. Yeah, 58 even. <laughs> that for me yeah. has got to be the most. That, and I might be stealing your thunder here a bit, that and the first sector of Roubaix. First sector, yeah, yeah, true, yeah, that's true. How many risks are we taking in there? There's also again the wide. The road is not quite as wide, mm-hmm. but it's about three or four wide, and you just got trains. I don't even bother the first sector. I know, but like, you still can't afford. Like if yeah, there's a crash, or yeah. then you're already you on the back foot. Like, yeah, true. Yeah. All right, what's yours? No, no, same. No, Those two? Yeah, hands down. Yeah, it's not still my thunder. It's like Quaremont, and I'd say the one before Arenberg, while Earth. That's yeah, Wallers. That's gnarly. before Arenberg. Yeah, I think that's worse than Arenberg because generally it's Arenberg's already split. Yeah. yeah. So what I, about the Cutterberg before the Hollowberg? It's always <laughs> gnarly between there. And you turn left and then so the Cutterbergs. It's a nothing climb, small stones, so it's really fast. You can actually go out of the seat mm-hmm. easily. Afterwards, is the Hollowberg is a pretty probably the roughest sector in Flanders. Yeah, one of the roughest. Yeah, but it's the first sector for each day normally. The first sector of all like Quaremont for sure and Flanders for sure yeah. it's just it's it's ways and especially that year they put us on that goat track before we went around the corner when you crashed into the barbed wire all right <laughs> Simon 
Simon B, this is. How would you find upper body strength plays a part in the classics? Is it why these races do tend to be dominated by bigger riders with stronger upper bodies? So I've, I've got to like an idea about this was that the re- I think there's two different reasons. The upper body strength is necessary because the climbs are so steep and a lot of the times you actually can't, if you want to attack or you want to do anything on them, you have to get out of your saddle. And if it's 17%, you'd literally doing like a bench press when you're pulling on your handlebars. So you have to have sort of strong arms because sitting down, you can't accelerate at the same rate as you can in the saddle. So getting out of your saddle over the top of a 17% or 15% climb, you need good upper body strength. Then the other one is I find bigger riders can be better at... But why does... Sorry to interrupt. Why does that not help in a race like Amstel? True. Okay. Don't know. Yeah. yeah, I think I think you need both. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm sure there's not. Okay, yeah. Gilbert still has big arms, and he wins Amstel and Roubaix. Yeah. Um, the other one was is that a lot of the times, a lot of the cobble classics, the cobbles itself, you cannot get out of your saddle on. So you have to be pushed back on your saddle with a bit of weight on the back of the wheel. Mm. And for a smaller guy, this can be more difficult because they have less weight on the rear wheel which then causes them to be bounced around. Mm. So you find a lot of climbers when they come on the classics or smaller guys, they just get rattled the shit out of and they can't hold the bike down on the on the cobble so the power transfer is different. But if you've got a big guy sitting back on the bottom bracket, he can generate power, he's putting a lot of weight on the back wheel, which means the power's going forward. And that's why you see maybe more robust guys doing better in the... I generally agree with you, but the only spanner in the works there that really threw me off was Vincenzo Nibali a few years ago in the tour. And like, I'm 100% agree with you, and I thought that was why Even in I, Tour of Flanders, I think. I thought that's why I was yeah. with the classics. I had a good style at ride, rode on the stones, I sat behind the bracket well, I could sit in the seat, produce good power, but then a guy like Nibali, and he rode with a high cadence, he was able to do it. And I'm like, well, it looks like I don't know anything. <laughs> I think that guy is just a freak freak anyway, so... All right. Ross, to what extent are the Classics riders concerned with their weight or not at all? It's like fat bastards to see as much as they can, pretty much. (laughs) I think we're in a a weight-dominated sport in any way. Like, we have to be conscious with our weight. Just It's unavoidable. And obviously, carrying anything excess... You, can't, you don't ride around with a saddlebag and a pump on your, on your bike, do you, when you race? You don't need any extra weight. It is a fine line between power and being skinny, sure. So that's why maybe classic riders are a bit more robust because they need more power, short, sharp efforts than you would for an extended period of time on a long climb. Mm. But, you know. Yeah, well, there's still steep climbs there. Still steep climbs. Like you speaking at a climb before, Cote Trio. It's a normal paved road that probably averages what I don't know, ten percent. Yeah, yeah. For about two k. Sure. If you're a fat bastard, you're not getting up that. No, no. So there's not with the front. So yeah. yes, you need to have a lot more calories because of the weather often. Yes. And that can we've discussed this in previous podcasts. Sometimes you get in this downward spiral where you're not finishing a race because you crashed out. You punch it, you miss the front split, so you're pulling out, you're getting ready for the next race, but you've consumed 5, 10, 20, 30,000 calories. 
<laughs> yeah, and you know at least <laughs> for that race, yeah. and you're only expending, you know, 500 calories. <laughs> but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So yes, yes. that can sometimes, <laughs> by the end of the classics, you're like, well, I maybe put on, you know, 200 grams. Yes. <laughs> or five kilo, and you're like, how'd that happen? Because you're preparing for these races and you're trying to compensate, you're ready for the big day. You're fueled and ready, but yeah. you maybe shouldn't have a career in nutrition and stuff. <laughs> well, aren't you a dietetic? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Catalina, how do you guys prepare for the classics in terms of weather? Do you eat more during the race and recovery after? Well, you gave a good rendition before. <laughs> well, yeah, look. No, but yes, in, in fairness, you do eat, you do eat more because... It's not just the the weather. Obviously, it's freezing outside, so your body's obviously working to stay warm. But also, because of the mental side of things, which is something that I didn't quite realize, is that your brain is using a lot of glucose to stay focused. Because of these races, you might need to stay focused for four out of the six hours or even more. Mm. Six out of the six hours of racing, your brain is actually burning through a lot of glucose that you don't quite, you can't quite measure. So on a power meter on our bikes, mo- pretty much everyone in the peloton rides with the power meter and you can calculate the amount of calorie expenditure you do via your effort, like your physical effort, effort, your yeah. physical effort. But in terms of the classics, you might come in and you might have only burnt maybe less than you might have done on a training ride for six hours, but you are exhausted because you have used so much. The extra elements. elements. You've got yeah. the, you've the got weather. The- the cobbles we spoke about it yep bouncing across a cobbled track being in freezing conditions yes and the stress that we spoke about and another good race to think about that is it doesn't get the wrap of the classics but it's a race like Paris Nice mm. it's a very very stressful race it's a stage race but you need to be prepared for everything and you need to and you can you finish a stage it's like a flat stage with crosswind any other race in the year you'd be like yeah, it'd be a hard stage, whatever. But suddenly you get in the bus, you're like, I'm absolutely rinsed. I'm starving. And then I'm all starving. the cycle like, starts is it, again. Is it, is it the cold weather? But it is, I think that's a big thing that gets underestimated. The mental aspect. The yeah. mental aspect. And with the classics, yes, it is important for the recovery straight after the race because you are racing another completely body emptying day two, two days, days later. Yeah, two days So... Right, Brendan, I know riders have to pee sometimes during races, and they often do so on the bike. Are riders doing this in most races, or is it more or less once or twice a season type thing? No, <laughs> sorry. Um, I think uh, <laughs> at least once per race you would stop and go to the bathroom. It's a pretty rare race. Unless you, you don't piss. Kilometre zero, you've found yourself in the break. That's one of my biggest fears. What do you do? <laughs> I've actually known breaks to actually go, you know what? Let's just have a piss. Actually, I found myself in a breakaway with Matt Heyman once. Two up, Torino, 220K, just me and Heyman in the same team. Only two guys in the breakaway. And the peloton was coming back and we thought, actually, you know, bugger it. Let's just stop for a piss. Because, you know, they don't want the breakaway back because then the attacks start again. So me and Heyman, just both two teammates, stopped on the side of the road. Had a piss. Had a piss and got going again. And the peloton stopped chasing. Yeah, because they were like, oh, no, we're catching these guys. We don't want anyone to go attacking again. So the sprint team sat up. But no, at least once a race. Can you piss on the bike? 
I can, but I, I rarely do it. I've probably done it like five times ever. It's very difficult because you don't want to, you know, there's always spectators, especially in Belgium. You know, I actually, but on another note, I actually enjoy stopping. Yeah, I enjoy yeah. unclipping, having that moment of going, oh, all right, here we go. Let's get ready for the next bit. <laughs> I, I don't mind pissing on the bike in terms of, if, if there's no people around, I, I wouldn't mind pissing on the bike because... I don't actually like coming through the cars because coming through the cars can be quite dangerous. All right, moving on. Michael, we all have our favourite monument, but which is your favourite semi-classic? I define a semi-classic as an early season one-day race like Samin, which is my favourite race, Samin. Well, it's actually on today, Samin. I've recorded it. We should watch it after. Let's watch it after, yeah. I can't wait to watch it. Yep. It's my favourite. No, it's not my favourite. I actually only done Samin once. Um... All right, what's your favourite semi-classic? Do you count Dwar's Door as a semi? World Tour now, isn't it? No, it's not now. It used to be my favourite semi. That would have been my favourite semi, Dwar's Door. Uh, The the problem with us is now we don't do many small races. No. No, no. Not because we don't want to, but the team just don't do them. I'd love to do a race like Samin or three days of uh, West Flanders was a great race. Um, But we just don't do them. Um, yeah, semi, the classic I could only say is, yeah, I, I don't think we do too many. So the punter. We don't do that. Well, we don't do that anymore either. Don't you do that? That used to be my favourite, sure. One day, you don't do... One well, day when Dwar's door, when uh, the punter was three days, hands down my favourite. When it became a one day. I used to love Dwar's of Flandern because, which is also called Warrigan. What's the official name of that? Dwar's of Flandern. Dwar's of Flandern, yeah. yeah. Because it was a race in between the big ones and a lot of big riders didn't do it because it was close to um san remo so if the guys did san remo it was also difficult to back up and do yeah or. and i used to always see as a little opportunity for myself to try and put a result in um the the levels are slightly lower but it was still all the the name the name climbs yeah, and it was a, it was a good course you it's know a great course a great course you know um but unfortunately now that's world tour and everyone just goes to win it so it's and they really moved hard. it as well now it's after getting where we're going Yep. So yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go with Dwar's door, but it's not a semi-classic. <laughs> All right, let's talk some tech now. Jay Vinny has got a question for us. What different tech modifications do you use purely for the classics? Double bar tape. Do you double up or you always double? No, I, I always double. Yeah, I always double. Yeah. But I did, I doubled for my first year and I've never gone back. True. What do you call the, um, do you run the, the classics button underneath? If we want that, we have to buy it. So I haven't okay. done it. <laughs> the, uh, I have this fight with the climbers. Um, they, they reckon it's called a climbing button. So, yeah, to explain to everyone who doesn't know what that Sorry. is, the DO2, <laughs> DI2 have made this button that sits on the top part of your bars where if you want to sit on the tops and ride the, the cobbles, you can still change the gears without going to your levers. And like you were saying, the climbers want to sit up there when they're climbing. We, I think it was originally made for the classics. I've always said it's a classic button, but then the climbers go, what do you mean? What, what's the classic button? No, that's the climbers button. I'm like, yeah, is it? So there's a bit of an argument between... Do you run that? Yes, always. Always? Always. Even all, all year round. All season. All year round, yeah. I maybe don't use it as much as I do, but I, I sometimes sit in an error position and hold on to the Garmin mount... And it's great, so then I can just change the button without actually taking my hands off to go to the sides. Nice. Simon, again, maybe a different Simon, I'm not sure. How do you feel about the disc brakes in the Classics? What I will say, 
The noise is horrendous. The first corner into the Harhook this year was deafening because of the rain as well. But what I will say is I felt there was less crashes due to disc brakes because what has happened before in the past, sure, there might be someone crashed. Crashes are going to happen in these races. That's the reality. But the people behind now can stop and react. So there might be one or two people crashing, not 15 people crashing because a lot of the time it's the guy coming from behind that has no option to stop. The stopping capacity on a disc brake is so much better. But Especially in the wet. But there is still some work to be done with rubbing and, and noise and a lot of other things that still need to be worked out. But they're on their way and I feel like it's uh, kind of the future, yeah. Aside from the braking side of things, I like the clearance now. And what I mean by that is when you had the caliper brakes, you were restricted to a certain tyre width you could run because it would just rub on the brake calipers. Now the disc brake being lower on the on the fork, you can have a tyre width that the frame can hold. So you can just have a wider frame and you can have a better clearance. And I'm seeing now, we just, we just use a bigger tyre all year round. Yeah. We're using 20, 25s to 28s all year round. I'm not a fully converter like in terms of certain things about it there needs to be a lot of work done about how to remove the wheel for changing you know changes are a lot slower and that's the reality of it if your bike's in the middle of the car has Mm. to be taken off Mm. your race is nearly over so there's a lot of still development skewers they need to do something with the the skewers skewers, yeah so but in terms of braking capacity and in terms of how they go in the wet and things like that they were i would say they were saving a lot of crashes than not Nice. Tommy, how easy do riders adjust to the Classics equipment? Is it easier to make a transition to a Classics bike these days? And do you even notice a difference? They're generally the same bike now. Yeah. It's no difference. We're not running the Roubaix bikes anymore because of that fact that I said. The Roubaix bikes in the in the previous years used to have... Bigger clearance, yeah. Well, they used to run the... Um, what are the brakes called? The um, V-brakes, mountain bike brakes. So you could have clearance for bigger tyres. You've been tires. pro longer than me, mate. I've never run a V-brake. <laughs> so we used to have them. And you'd have a specific bike for Roubaix because it had different brakes, V-brakes on it. But now we've got disc brakes. You don't need to run a different bike because you can have a 30 millimeter tire on or even more i even been riding a 33 on my bike and the bike itself they're so complete now that the absorption on the cobbles and the they they tick so many boxes they're aero they're also comfortable the geometry like the work that goes in from from all the bike brands about trying to make it a complete bike is so big that you don't necessarily have horses for courses now you've literally just got a horse for everything you know Kate, what happens to riders who abandon a race? How do they get back to the team bus? Does it get packed in team cars during these races where so few finish? So does it get full in the team cars? Well, you're pretty lucky to get in a team car these days. I have never been in a... I've been in a team race car once. They let you in. It was a second race car and I pulled out of the Vuelta and the car was following me and only me. Okay. And so eventually I was just like, oh, I've got to get in the car. Okay. And so they had to, the thing is what people might not realize is there's nowhere to put your bike because the, the top of the car's got enough room for every spare bike. It's full. So your bike has to actually fit in the car. When the car's really full, it's got an Esky in the back, it's got rain bags. What'd you do with your bike? They put it in with a mechanic. 
<laughs> like it just fits in like next to him yeah like squeeze in the back seat <laughs> but in any other race you won't do that and in a classic the classics are quite different because you pass a lot of helpers either soigneurs or people just feeding you throughout the course we have like maybe 50 points in a race it seems ridiculous but we got bottles on every climb every second corner there's people there so if you're not feeling that good it's actually a bit of a carrot i would say it's one of the sometimes one of the worst places to pull out because like what happens on the weekend like on on saturday i punctured again and on the on the hard hook and then Hayman's like okay just shut it down you know save it for tomorrow so I was there and Alex Edmondson was, was with me as well and we started riding and we started get going and, and we're just sort of trying to work out, like, okay, now where's Ninoven? We got no phone, you got your Garmin on you, but if it doesn't have maps, you don't know. And lucky Alex Edmondson spent a fair bit of time in Belgium. He's like, I think it's near Brakel. I was like, oh, it's near Brakel. Yeah, okay. So we turned around, rode on the bike path. I'm talking for 15K or so. All of a sudden we see Sam Bewley pop up out of the, uh, the Valkenberg. Hey boys, do you win Nino for like? So Sam Bailey is also a teammate of ours. He pulls over to me and he's gone. Yeah, I think it's near Brackle. So then we just all like we're trying to like work out on our Garmin to where we got to go, and we ride to Brackle. We get to Brackle. Ah, oh, there, there's a sign of Nino. And, oh, it's 15k. So we'd already rode like 30k, and then all of a sudden there's another 15k to Nino, and then we rode to the final. And so the like, race gets. You know the yeah. worst is the race gets there before you. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. We should just stayed on the race route. I think there was a funny story. We lost one rider once and he just went to a house and just sat there and they tried to work out the, you know, in Belgium always someone knows something to do with a bike race, called someone who called someone who called someone and eventually got ahead of our director, Lorenzo Lepage, and then they came and picked him up and he was just in his house. So it's pretty funny because as soon as the race is finished, it's open road. Mm. You know, you are literally in traffic. Like just behind the sour wagon, there's a car behind. I'd almost say it is good advice to give a young guy learn the roads in Belgium, learn where certain towns are, but it is also crap advice. Because what does that mean? You're going to maybe pull out of a race (laughs) and you have to find your way home. So maybe you should say never learn your way because that means you can never pull out of a race. I think what they should do is a bit of a gift pack. So as soon as the DS, like goes past you to have you pulled out of the race he just throws this gift pack out to you and maybe in there's a like a phone maybe like some sort of first aid kit or something like that i've been given the advice a burrito i think when my wife was pregnant last year i was doing a a few races in the classics where we weren't sure if i was going to get the call and one of our soigneurs suggested to me put 50 euro underneath your sole in your shoe at any moment if you get the call through the radio that your wife is going to labour, pull over, hail a cab down, and get the cab straight to the finish. Is there cabs in the convoy? Well, <laughs> once the convoy, well, like once you go yeah, back yeah, to the yeah, normal. Yeah, I, know, I know what you mean. But I was thinking, hang on, why haven't I done that ever before? Like, it's not a bad idea. You know, like on those on those trips home, you can stop at a cafe, maybe <laughs> get a couple of beers on the way back, make make it into a bit of a road <laughs> trip. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. But more or less. Yes, it can be a bit of a hassle getting back to the finish. What do most guys do between race weekends during the classic season? Recover, train, etc.? Well, it's not normally a weekend. It's actually every second or third day. Mm. Run me through quickly your routine. So, for instance, you've got Gent Wavelgum on Sunday. 
The following Wednesday will be Dwarves of Flandern, and the following Sunday will be Tour of Flanders. Run me through what you think you would do that week. Uh, that week would be not too much. You, you would do Sunday get Wervergum, generally a massive 6,000 calorie day, lots of stress. So Sunday night, good meal. Monday would be quite an easy ride. One hour, two hours. Coffee shop. Coffee shop, down the skelter, just spinning your legs out. Then Tuesday would come around, and I actually like to get behind the motorbike. Not hard at all, but just to sort of spin the legs out a little bit longer, make that ride probably two hours, and do some sort of openers. Now, what I mean by openers, you might choose between five and 10 minutes where you progressively step through heart rate zones up to sort of your maximum just to sort of open the body up so it's not asleep so you're not asleep when you when you go to sleep when your body has a big effort it it can tend to shut down and go into a sort of a safety mode more Mm. or less so you just need to open those zones up that you're going to do in the race and that's pretty much it in terms of nutrition you would big meal sunday night Monday, you would sort of keep it quite normal um, in sort of normal eating. You don't need to overeat on the, on the Monday. And then Tuesday, you'd start to reload the glycogen stores in your muscles for the Wednesday. And then the same repeat, recipe, yeah. repeat, 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 repeat. That was from Brian. And we've got a couple questions left. Beth, how is the Peloton reacting to the coronavirus? Um, look, I think you mentioned this to me before the podcast that... Obviously, it's in the news now. There's quite a lot of stuff happening with coronavirus in Italy. And we were waiting to hear if the races were going to go ahead. And look, I think everyone's just not knowing really anything about it. So I'm not going to go out on a limb. No, I just don't think like anyone knows about anything. Like yeah. it's nothing to do with just racing. It's to do with everything, you know, travel or events coming up or people are cancelling this, people are cancelling that. People are just a, a level of uncertainty. And I think the uncertainty affects our sport because we are, we travel so much mm. and we're, we're bringing a, a variety of, people from different places to one space which is obviously not what you want when there's a pandemic going on so i guess you can't we could talk about you know hypotheticals for a long time about it but we don't we we just got to act like business as usual and we have great medical staff my team your team generally uci and, and and all the pro teams and i'm sure they're having much more of a headache about about what to do so we just kind of got to soldier on more or less but it in answer to the question, yes, it is having an effect. It's not having an effect on on us per se, but there is, you know, our safety is getting discussed a lot about what's going on at the moment now. But do Aussies sometimes miss the extra support of a home crowd while racing the classics? I mean, it'd be nice, but there is actually a lot of Aussies that come over, sure. No? I discussed this with... I don't know whether I said this in the podcast, but I was discussing this in Australia. I find it funny racing in Australia... And I don't know, I think it's because I haven't done it my whole career that I don't necessarily, it's going to come out wrong. I don't necessarily love it because I do love the support, but I've got used to having no support. So, and not understanding what people are saying. So I get in my zone and I just race. Yes, I can hear the noise of the crowd, but I can't understand what they're saying. And sometimes I find that really distracting in Australia. Uh, I ride up a climb or something and I can actually hear what this person's saying. They might be like, Come on, Mitch, give it to him. Yeah, yeah, oh, jeez. And there's a difference in come on. There's, come on, Mitch, get into it. Or, come on, mate. Jesus. (laughs) I'm sure they don't say that. Give it some. (laughs) 
You know, so there's a difference. You ate all the pies. <laughs> yeah. So, and like that actually like distracts you for like two seconds. But so I've got used to racing with no support, if that sounds funny, and you just get about your business. The crowds give me energy because of the energy they put into it. Just sure. the yelling and, you know, the... He's like, come on, Mitch, huh? Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. hello, Mitch. And you're like, oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> And it's cool when someone yells your name. And yeah. I, I definitely, my ears do prick when I hear my name in Europe. So that's quite cool. Got my own uh, fan club now in Belgium. Yeah, you do. So, so you've got to get used to the old support because uh, the podcast is doing wonders for the old support for Mitch. I don't think it had anything to do with the podcast. It's purely my writing ability. <laughs> sure it is. All right. Harrison, boys, if it came down to a two-up sprint at Roubaix between the two of you, who would win? Mitch. Yeah, I think, look, yeah. <laughs> if it came down to a sprint, and if it wasn't going to be a sprint, I could probably just ride away anyway. Oh. <laughs> I think if it came down to a sprint... You would win. What would you do? If we <sighs> rolled into the track... Together? Yeah. Oh, this is quite a funny... I don't have many options, okay, in, in just in to, you know, to set the scene. Mitch is a lot faster than me, because Mitch used to be... But am I, though, at the end of Roubaix? Yeah. Like, potentially, you've got through Roubaix easier than me, being with a bigger engine. Sure. So you're fresher at the end? I think if I've left it to the velodrome, I've made a mistake. But look, let's look at, let's look at Heyman's win. Yes. Would you say Heyman's a better sprinter than Tom Boonen? No, no. True. But what happened? He let it out. True. Boonen couldn't even get off his wheel. True. So just I'd lead it out and you couldn't get off the wheel then. But would I let you lead it out? <laughs> we can go after back watching, and forth. After watching Heyman, I'm, I'm going back on the old never lead Roubaix out. I would, like, I've always had this thought, like, maybe I'd use the track more. So, you know, Stay you, up you, high. You, yeah, you always see, but it's actually not that steep. But yeah. you just maybe doing it inefficiently. But, you know, maybe I'd do like what I do in a points race. When I was back on the track, I'd drop down, do a semi sprint down the back straight. So the guy's sitting in there ready, thinking that you've done your sprint as a lead out. And then we come to the, the bend, yeah. comes up, then open up properly. Would you be that clear-minded, though? Probably not. Yeah, that's what I'm just thinking. <laughs> but in my dreams, all right, Miss, this is my thought I've been having. So you've got my tactic. There's my tactic. Hey. <laughs> I could potentially see you, we come on the track and you're just going. Oh, just going? <laughs> yeah. Two out. Yeah, just like two out and just like gapping me by like, 30 meters and i'm like oh i can't actually close the gap <laughs> i'd be so sad if that's how it ended we just do a rock scissors paper i reckon <laughs> in the end so all right you have it we can both salute <laughs> all right the last question from nick what's the beer choice for a post race let's we, keep it classics wise or up in Belgium. yep all vile yeah yep all vile that's simple all sorry it was a bit of a dead heat <laughs> <laughs> well guys thank you very much for listening I hope we haven't lingered on too long Terbs cheers mate thanks for having me on cheers, enjoyed mate. being back here and talking the classics I can hear in your voice mate you might need to come up for a few more I'm happy with my three <laughs> and I'm going to be just popping up on the podium in those three and that'll do exactly we'll see you on the velodrome then I guess <laughs> <laughs> see you mate Well, Mitch, the first thing I've got to say about that is to find out that your favourite Belgian beer is also my favourite Belgian beer, Orval. Well, that's not a surprise because it's the best best beer out there. I tell you what, like, 
If you haven't tried one of them, anyone out there, go and find it out. If you're not in Belgium, it'll be a bit harder to find, but I'm sure you can find it and get one of those, sit down, get the right glass and enjoy that. Listen to this podcast. Go back and listen to the podcast again if you hadn't, if you didn't have one already, because it's it's a brilliant beer. It is. Uh, I like that you say there, get the right glass, because that's so important. Drinking the right beer out of the glass that's uh, made to go with the beer. Um, Orval, anyone listening out there, if you want to search for it, it's O R V A L. And uh, something that I didn't know until I um, went over to. Uh, Flanders a few years ago was actually it's not a Flemish beer it's from the Walloon area of uh, of Belgium albeit right over on the uh, west side of the country and it started as, as a beer that was brewed by the monks and um, I don't know whether this is still the case but there's a kind of a slight urban legend about this beer that the brewery only releases a certain number of bottles of it in uh, you know a monthly period so if you basically bars run out of it so once it's gone it's gone but i don't know whether that's something that i've been told and i've, I've been too too foreign and gullible to uh, not work out that they're pulling my leg I'm not no sure. it's it is true because it's quite difficult to get it's down right down near luxembourg actually it's um quite a fair way down i've never been there but i would love to go it's an amazing abbey down there but if you now go into any bottle shop in belgium and even the supermarkets don't stock stock full cases because Orval's one of the only beers that I know of that you can actually age and it gets better with age, a little bit like a wine. It obviously increases in price as well. So you can buy in a, in a Belgian bar an Orval that is that year, which is probably about, I think, three or four euro. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then the next year, if it's aged for one year, is about seven and it just keeps doubling. You know, there's about 14 or 20 euro bottle of, bottle of beer, which is quite expensive in Belgium. And what people were doing is they were just going into bottle shops and buying cases and cases and cases, aging them and then selling them online. So it's difficult to get because they were like, you know what, if you're really going to drink it, buy it. But if you're going to just age it and sell it, they weren't selling it to people like that. So um, when I went up there and was trying to transport some back to my home in Spain, I was trying to get a case, but I couldn't get my hands on a case until I sort of had to fly the old I'm a professional cyclist flag. And then um, magically a case appeared. Shameless. Absolutely shameless. I don't blame you. I mean, it sounds like a great investment opportunity, but the problem is uh, not drinking it before it accumulates some value. That would be my biggest challenge. Um, I really enjoyed the the questions from the listeners there, but uh, it was a real relief for me that you professional cyclists have the same quandary about what clothes to put on when the weather is, is cold or very cold. The difference here, though, is when I go out cycling, if I get my clothing selection wrong, I'm just out. I'm cold. You know, I've not brought the right gloves. I've not brought the right jacket. Whereas you can just drop back to the car and collect whatever you need. I mean, you know, you've you've got it easy, really. You make that sound so simple. But I tell you what, as Luke explained, going back to the car at the wrong time in the race can be the end of your day. And I was quite surprised to hear that he went back for his rain jacket. And as you heard me say, why didn't you just put that in your pocket? Um, Because... Once you get your position in the Belgium Classics, taking a piss, taking your rain jacket off, even going out of the bunch to get a bottle sometimes is detrimental and you don't want to lose one one position or even five or half a peloton, you know, God forbid if you take the corner on the wrong side. So going back to the car is sometimes a deathly decision and you got to be really cold and really want it to make that call. 
The other thing I was chortling about was that I just assumed that the old school um, thing of putting double layers of handlebar tape on for the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix was, was kind of uh, an old school thing, but, but you, you still do that. I, I don't know if many guys get it wrapped for Roubaix specifically on the day, but I, all I know is Durbo and myself, I think a few others, once you... Once you go double, you don't go back. It's sort of this thing. And I know another guy, David Miller, he also used to have double or triple rolled. And something about that feeling. And once you get that, you know, bar tape's a very specific thing. And there's good mechanics who can roll it really well. And there's mechanics who just put it on. And there's a big difference in my book about who puts my bar tape on well. And it comes down to the two rolls. Once I did two rolls back in the day with my first Roubaix, I think, I just went, you know what? I might just leave this on. So um, I'm not too sure how many people really get it put on specifically for the day anymore. I think that is true. It's a bit of an old an old thing. But um, there's a few guys in the pearls on that roll, uh, two rolls of bar tape all year long. It sounds like it's the sort of thing that is as personal to a cyclist as a tennis player's tennis racket grip or a golfer's golf club grip. Um, once you get it right, that's how you want it. Yeah, it's exactly the same, I think. But some guys are not that fussy with that, you know, and they just have one layer on there super thin and and it's got to be taped to the exact spot for me um, before the head, head stem connects, even on each side. You're looking down at it all day. It's just one of those things that you can see and feel with your hands and notice. So um, I'm probably sounding like a really uh, prima donna right now, but <laughs> I guess we all are. No, I get that. I get that. If it's slightly wrong or the gaps aren't quite even on both sides of the of the stem, that's the sort of thing that would drive you wild if you're on the bike for 200k. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's one of those little things and the classics. And I, I did love hearing Durbo talk about the classics button. Um, that's something for me I thought was a bit of a gimmick. And, you know, I got over that after one or two years and it just wasn't necessary for me. But, you know, Durbo, he's pushing on with it. Good to see. Um, and that discussion, that continual discussion, is it a climbing button? Is it a classics button? Even though it was developed for the classics, I love how the, the climbs have tried to adopt that. I think that's one that no one's going to ever win that argument are they but uh, one other thing that really leapt out at me was uh, just hearing from well both of you talk about the the, the disc brake bikes because i've been watching Paris nice on tv and i just this is just my sense but last season it felt like maybe 50 60 percent of the bunch were on disc brakes watching Paris nice this week it feels like it's much closer to sort of 85 90 percent of the peloton and now riding disc brake bikes and uh one of the things that you, we don't really get from the tv coverage is that sense of the noise they make as everyone's approaching a, a tight corner yeah they really do howl um and i get the feeling over the years they've got better and better i'm talking about the last two or three years in the first year they were really howling a lot and squealing and um we've all learnt how to bed the brakes um, when you first get them is something we didn't weren't aware about in the beginning and we're just using fresh brakes straight up braking really hard at the start which in turn makes them squeal a lot it's just one of those things that you sort of take for granted i guess watching tv and all those little noises and things that go on in, in especially in a classics race that's what you can't see and i always advise people if you're going to go and watch a race and you can choose any race in the year you've got to get to belgium you've got to see those classics races because the cobblestone races that is where racing's at i'm not saying the tour de france isn't good to watch all the giro but they're different the classics 
95% of those guys are racing with everything they've got and you see it in their eyes. You can feel it on the side of the road and you can feel it with the fans and that comes down to all those noises and like Durbo and I were talking about, racing for that corner. It's just an amazing part of the season and amazing amazing racing in this part of the season what's your um, situation with with disc brakes are, are you a, a convert do you do you ever switch between one and the other no we're we've oh, well the only bike we don't have on disc now is the time trial bike so we don't have that option anymore we did have that option with our climbing bike last year but now our new climbing bike has got disc brakes so we've got a sprint bike, disc brakes, a climbing bike with disc brakes, and the time trial bike has rim brakes. And how do you feel? Were you were you eager to swap over? Initially, I wasn't. I think like 90% of the people were just like what they knew was calipers. And I think what converted me was this new bike we have. The um, It's called the Super 6 Evo. And I was actually riding it a hell of a lot off-road this year in the gravel and I had some 31 millimeter tires on it. And I suddenly was like completely converted. I was like, this bike is an everything bike. I can ride this off-road. I can race on this in sprints. I can climb on this in the hardest races in the world tour. It was a super lightweight bike, aerodynamic. And with that clearance from disc brakes and the power of the disc brake, I could go and ride gravel. So I was like, I think I hate to say it, but I'm converted. It's been really positive, I have to say. You know, I was I was looking for something to to pull it down the disc brakes, but at the, at this point, I'm I'm enjoying them. Well, Mitch, it was really interesting listening to you and Luke talk about opening weekend. I'm I'm just hoping as we sit here now that it doesn't end up being closing weekend for the classics this year. But I guess nobody can really say what will or won't be on. I guess all your plans are up in the air and you're just have like the rest of us have to watch and wait and see uh, what travel plans are possible and what events go ahead yeah well that's right but there, i do know there's one thing that's going to always go ahead is the podcast and something that i've mentioned to you is that it's given me more time to plan and think about good guys i want to get on the podcast have some good recordings so there's going to be some good podcasts coming up in the next few weeks make sure you stay tuned but especially stay tuned i've got this new little series coming up on the life in the peloton feed we're going to call it talking luft it's a little 10 minute snippet go around to my original handle life in the peloton have a listen to that it's a cheeky little thing in the alternate weeks the life in the peloton episodes as you know them are still going to be here on the cycling podcast as always and then in the alternate weeks we're just going to have a little 10 minute segment just to keep you in there and enjoying some more life in the peloton episodes so guys until next week Listen out for Talking Luft. I'm Mitch Docker, and this is Life in the Peloton. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.